You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And now a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Tracy Walder, who's a former staff operations officer at the CIA's Counterterrorism Center and a special agent at the FBI's Los Angeles field office, specializing in Chinese counterintelligence operations. She's also taught high school history and government courses at the Hockaday School in Dallas, Texas. I'm not sure what is more frightening. She now is the board of directors for Girls Security, a nonprofit, nonpartisan group that brings national security curriculum to girls in high school throughout the U.S. And she's the author of the new book, The Unexpected Spy, From the CIA to the FBI, My Secret Life Taking Down Some of the World's Most Notorious Terrorists, which has just come out. So by the time you're hearing this, about a week old. So welcome, Tracy. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thank you for having me, Vince. So uh, the first question with a lot of authors is relatively similar. Now a lot of former practitioner authors even more so. In the last, let's call it a decade, there's been an influx of books from former CIA officers. In some cases, they decided to forego the PRB process. They decided to even do very little to disguise who or what they were dealing with. You went through PRB, which is the right way to go. You know, just kind of not as an agency shill, but that's the, that's the legal way to go. Did you have any issues putting this book through PRB? Because it is very recent, right? You're talking about your life from not too long ago. Was there, are there any PRB horror stories that you have for us? So I think I had a relatively easy time with the PRB, and I give the credit 
to my easy time uh, to recent authors like um, uh, Nada Bacos and Sarah Carlson, who both had to go through lawsuits to get their books mm-hmm. through and took years and years. Um, for me, I submitted the manuscript and about four months later, I received it back with a couple chapters entirely redacted. Obviously, you cannot publish a book right. like that. Um, you know, and I emailed them and would ask them questions back and forth. and. They were actually really great uh, in getting back to me, would talk to me on the phone. They couldn't tell me specifically why things were redacted, but I could sort of garner from our conversations why things were redacted. So I sent it back, and maybe I think two chapters were completely redacted, and then a little more guesswork, sent it back again. Um, And then by that, I think it was the third or fourth time that it came back, it was to a point that I think it was intelligible and understandable with the redactions right. that were in. Well, it's interesting you, you mentioned Nana Bacos, who, who would probably bristle at being called a trailblazer for women at CIA, but she certainly was as yes. part of the targeting and stuff. But those court cases, those those lawsuits, were also a, kind of somewhat of a benchmark about kind of forcing the agency to to have a little better justification mm-hmm. for why they're redacting things. and. You certainly benefited from that, but you do see kind of now where it's becoming more and more open in the, in the agency itself, and I think it's because of people kind of forcing the issue. I think it's I think it's because of people forcing the issue. I really credit Nada with, with blazing that trail, whether she would like that or not. I really do credit her uh, for that, but I think part of it too is, and this is just really a hypothesis that I have. You know, I think there's a lot of pushback right now about the deep state. You know, mm-hmm. we're always hearing about that. Um, I'm wondering if this is a chance to, for them, you know, to get out information. Right. My book is rel- pretty positive, actually, about the CIA. And I'm just wondering if that was maybe sort of one of the plans. I, I don't know. I, I, I think that you're probably right. I mean, we, we talked to John Brennan um, and talked about kind of the re- outreach toward the public. And he mentioned that it was an incredibly important co- part of this mm-hmm. because... Congress isn't giving you money unless Congress is getting kind of support from the people. Mm-hmm. And that that's a um, key concept for all these agencies, which there's 17 of them, quote unquote. I mean, there's 16 in like a fake one, um, <laughs> but all competing for the same purse right. and the same money. What I find, always find funny about redactions, and I chuckled about this in your book too, and I don't care whose it is, if it's Mike Hayden or if it's NATO or any of them, there's always a description of a city <laughs> that they leave in there, that it becomes so blatantly obvious. Yeah. You know, you, you talk about a city in there where you, you don't mention Jack the Ripper by name, but five people killed, a very I, futuristic <laughs> thing on the river. It's one of these things where it's like, just let her say London. Well, and I think just with, with one of the chapters that was entirely redacted, um, I was becoming, I wasn't really completely frustrated with the CIA, but I just couldn't figure out why that chapter, the whole thing was, I just couldn't figure it out. And then I realized it was just the name of a statue, <laughs> which happened to be the most famous statue mm-hmm. in that country. I deleted it. Just I think it just is the statue. Um, sure enough, the entire chapter was made it right through. Well, it makes sense. I mean, <laughs> the, the CIA sometimes doesn't want people to know it's even in countries, and let that's alone fine. cities. I have to respect that. And you did a great job in disguising names. And, and I, I kind of say this as a joke. I really wanted you to, <laughs> to publicly shame your yeah. FBI instructors at Quantico, which we'll we'll talk about down the road. But even you had the, you know, you were nice enough to disguise their names. Well, I'm not sure if that was me being nice enough or my publisher's legal team okay. <laughs> advising that it's best to not use their names. <laughs> and when, when you read the book, you'll know why. Um, anyone who has any self... Um, 
you know, moral sense is going to want to go beat up these FBI instructors. Maybe, <laughs> hopefully, they're long retired and, and having a really horrible life. Um, let's talk a little bit about your origin story. I mean, that's when we talk about anyone who has um, a, a career, and I'll use that word even though it wasn't 30 years at CIA. No. Um, many people that we talk to were thinking national security careers from like mm-hmm. elementary school, right? Um, where they're, you know, I'm going to be in the FBI or I'm going to be in the Secret Service and the CIA. Not so much you. You didn't really know what you were doing, but subconsciously you were kind of preparing yourself for that because instead of going out and watching movies, you were reading books about the Middle East. Or instead of going out, you know, and doing uh, extracurricular activities, you were studying, you know, geology and history. Does that, when you're looking back at that now, do you kind of realize that you kind of the CIA was kind of always going to be a career for you. I know you didn't, never had that thought, but just the prep work that you put in as a kid, it seems like almost naturally leads to that job. Um, I think I think so. Um, I come from a very military family. My grandpa was a colonel. My other grandpa was a medic in World War II. My dad was in the Navy. My uncle was in the Army. So obviously that's a life that I've been very much exposed to, sort of life of service to country. But I knew... I never saw myself in the military, but I think, do you have to remember growing up, I was born in the 70s, so grew up 80s, 90s. You know, we didn't have shows like Quantico or mm. Homeland, and um, people in those jobs didn't necessarily, I guess, look like me or represent me. And so I think, you know, you said you've had people here, national security was, you know, have to wonder if they saw themselves, right, right in some of those positions. And, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think it just, it just was, right? And there well, you're much... right. Many of them were men. Many of them were kind of looking, I want to be the next James Bond yeah. or I want to be the next whatever. Thankfully, Homeland wasn't out when you were a kid because <laughs> we don't need you having that idea uh, moving forward. But eventually, I mean, you couldn't – you even mentioned the, uh, the movie Election in your book. Mm-hmm. And you talk about Tracy Flick as kind of reference to a character – the minute I read that, I immediately thought Reese Witherspoon, and almost like this is legally blonde, the CIA version in many respects, because you are a Southern California sorority girl at USC who gets recruited into the CIA. And I mean, I think if you pitched that to Hollywood, they'd be like, okay, you know, Reese Witherspoon is going to star. It's going to be a comedy. It was not going to be about you hunting down terrorists around the world. Well, and I think that's part of why I'm really grateful to my publisher. Um, a lot of publishing companies wanted me to sort of pretend that that part of my life didn't happen Mm -hmm. um, because I didn't fit the mold and stereotype that they had. And it's sort of this weird gender narrative that if you do these things that are inherently, I guess, airheady or extremely effeminate, um, then that debases your seriousness, your credibility, and your ability. And we need to get to a place, I think, where the two can coexist. Right. And my publisher saw that. And I'm really grateful to them. Well, it's fantastic. I mean, because I think you you don't go into what might be considered the traditional path for a sorted girl from Southern California, and that's being an operations officer and human intelligence going over and recruiting people overseas. You go into counterterrorism work, right, which is the gritty, you know, doesn't really matter what you look like, except it does in certain circumstances. Why did you go that CT route versus traditional human if you wanted to be in operations? So, um, again, it kind of fell into me not really having too many expectations to be. And, and maybe that seems ditzy of me, I, but I think for me, 
sometimes if you have too many expectations and you have too set in your mind what something should look like, you're never going to be successful in the career that you have. And so I think for me, I was very grateful to be working at the CIA and I sort of decided, well, wherever they put me, that's where I belong. And it happened to be a place that I wanted to be, um, which was counterterrorism. Again, I really have never gone sort of what the expected uh, route was. Um, You know, I had sort of developed that passion for counterterrorism from Peter Bergen's interview. And I think that was where my passion was. I don't know that I necessarily cared that it wasn't the traditional, you know, Russia House right. operations officer. There's people that wanted to be in there, and I think that's great. Um, but that's where I wanted to be. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the Peter Bergen interview, and you mentioned mm-hmm. the kind of, it might sound ditzy, but this is pre-9-11 we're yes. talking about. So mm-hmm. this is a time in which CIA is not on the lips of mm-hmm. a lot of Americans. No. It, you know, in Congress, people are talking about getting rid of CIA right. in the mid-1990s. And so you go into a, a job which um, isn't all that sexy at the time it's not like you're you know, again november of 2001 when everyone's trying right. to join the agency to go hunt down bin Laden. and you're at cia at langley during 9 11. i talked to dozens and dozens of people about that moment and mm-hmm. that, that's kind of our generation and the generation right above us that that transitional moment in their career and there's no one that doesn't have the story about how that changed their trajectory or how it impacted mm-hmm. their trajectory so how did that shape your career moving forward? Obviously, just, I mean, at the very basic minuscule level, the pace of my work became much more frenetic. I was very sort of nine to five, if you will. Um, before that, it became much more frenetic. Um, I think the events of September 11th, from just a social, emotional, psychological standpoint, did not affect me at the time. They actually didn't start affecting me until I started teaching 9-11 to Mm. my own students. Um, What, five years later, six years later? Then I started realizing the true impact that that event um, had on me. Um, And so I think at the time you go into, it wasn't panic mode, but sort of operations mode. What are we gonna do? How are we gonna get these people? How did this happen? How are we gonna mitigate the risk? How are we gonna find the next threat, right? There's no time to really process what right. happened you even mentioned in the book that one of your co-workers kind of clapped and smiled and said like let's go to work right do you think and i've never actually never asked this question before and it's an interesting one to me do you think you actually had an advantage over the average american in that the rest of us kind of looked at what was happening and said i don't know what i can do to do you know, maybe i can join the military or maybe yeah. i can like you you knew what you need you get to get to work like let's catch these guys like you didn't have time that's actually the really, kind of sit and mourn. That's actually a really good question. Um, you're right. And I think that's maybe how we channeled. And, and I think I say my colleague, that was misplaced. She didn't mean right. it like that. And I think, though, for us, it was like, okay, we can do something about this. Right. We, we, we can solve this problem. We can fix this problem. Whereas I think, um, I don't want this to sound condescending, you know, the general public uh, was looking for a way to help. Oh, we I'm knew we had couch. a way, I mean, you know, to help. I, I'm, I'm a month out of the Army sitting on my couch going, if I'd gotten out of the army two months later, I'd be on my way to Afghanistan right, right now, right? So I'm sitting there thinking, I can't do anything about this. You know, I, I, everyone else probably in America is feeling the same way, but you do kind of have that, okay, now we can do, we can strike back. We can do something about it. Well, this. especially the program that I was working. Right, let's talk about the vault. Oh. <laughs> yeah, because that, that's that's kind of the next transition to that. I mean, that was the part I was very surprised the CIA. Right, you, you, don't, you don't get to use the word targeting. I'm not going to put it in your mouth, even though... It's now out in the open, thanks to certain lawsuits. But I'm not um, going to use it. But you're not going to use it. 
Um, what's really interesting about this, this is, this is ground zero, not to use a, a word that gets thrown around too much, of the CIA response to 9-11, to the point where you're working in a small room and behind you, George Tennant's walking in, and George Bush is walking in, and Condoleezza Rice, and Colin Powell, because this is where the war is being fought. You talk in the book. There's great stories about all the top people and about how that. It, it's extraordinary to me, and I guess it does say something about you know the ability of America to get beyond politics. That this was business. Mm-hmm. This was. I don't care if you voted for the guy. I don't care if you like the guy or not. And in hindsight, W is not my favorite president. But on those moments. You're, you're down to business and there's no politics involved at well, all. Well, that's one one actually gift I took from my time at the CIA. Um, you know, being from Southern California, I think I was, I really wasn't exposed to a lot of different politics, um, just sort of one way. But I think working at the CIA helped me realize everything is in shades of gray. Nothing is black and white. Right. And decisions really can't be made based on politics. And I think that really helped shape my future and how I view foreign policy in particular. Um, And it's actually part of the impetus for writing the book. Um, I really got very frustrated with the amount that politics was bleeding into the CIA. Mm -hmm. And I worked there under two different presidents, two very different parties, um, and I never saw politics really involved. In fact, they both kept tenant. He was head under both Clinton and Bush. And I just had never... It was it was one of the great things about the agency, and now um, I think that's being manipulated a little right. bit. Well, one of the one of the main events that took place while you're in this job is one that's forgotten by a lot of people today. Uh, is that we almost got Bin Laden right after 9/11, <laughs> um, and this is at a, a middle of nowhere outpost, for lack of a better term, known as Tora Bora, and uh, it's now taught as what not to do. Uh, when it comes to not the intelligence side of things, but as far as the send uh, in ground troops, right, that's yeah, what you should do. <laughs> exactly. At least do something. Uh, how frustrating must that have been, especially because you have the bird's eye view of this. You are watching this basically in real time about the most wanted man in the world just kind of walking on out because everyone kind of can't get their shit together. You would have thought that at that time it would have been, you know, a lot of screaming and cursing and, you know, sort of pounding on the tables. And that actually didn't happen. It was the polar opposite. It was, and I think I say that in Mm -hmm. the book, it was very much, you know, you could hear a pin drop. It was just deflated. The life was completely deflated out of the room. And no one said a word. Now, I don't know what they did once they got to their own sort of seventh floor offices, if you will. But um, at least that's what happened in that room. Well, you, you described Tennant in there with the unlit cigar, yeah. like he's George Chewing Patton. on it. Like, yeah, like, let's get this guy. And then it just kind of peters out. And I think perhaps I, I wonder in hindsight if you had known, if anyone in the room had known it was going to take another eight years before we got Bin Laden, if that would have kind of changed, or nine years, if it would have changed the mentality of people. I don't know, because I'm sort of of the mindset that and I, I, I've said this before, and I think I say it in the book as well, is that terrorists are like starfish. It really doesn't matter if you take out the head. You right. know, we killed Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, we killed Zarqawi, we killed bin Laden, but it doesn't mean terrorism died with them. But unfortunately, I think the public has a disinformed opinion narrative of that in that you know we kill a terrorist oh the you know the network's gone yay and so for me i and i'm sure some of my former colleagues will be frustrated by this i've never been a let's get bin laden over all else sort of 
person. Um, right. I'm glad he's dead. Please don't get me right. wrong. <laughs> but um, but the de decapitation narrative is never something that struck with you. <laughs> no. I, I think there's an element of bloodlust in this too. I'll be completely honest. You is think? That people just want payback. And I think that if you just, I mean, I, I don't know where you were when we finally got bin Laden, but I was in D.C. and just the people chanting outside the White House. And, and it was, at first I was like, yeah, we got bin Laden. And I'm looking around yeah. like, we're cheering that we just killed a bunch of people. And yes, that's See, I'm a terrible person. Business, that part doesn't bother me. Yeah. I am not at all sad that we killed people. And maybe that's why I was just fine at the CIA. But I'm not sad about that. What I'm sad about is that it creates this false pretense that, okay, oh God is gone. Right, we we're won. gone. Yeah. Yay, it's done. And it's not. We still need, I think you were talking about this before, these agencies still need to be funded. Right. right? And I worry that it decreases their funding um, when sort of the public support isn't there necessarily. And, and scary as some of these individuals are, you actually moved on to um, a role at CIA that when people stop and think about it, this is what keep, keeps people up at night, and that's bioweapons. It still keeps me up at night. Yeah, I mean, this is... if. It, uh, my background is nuclear weapons, as, as a lot of oh. people know, and those are scary enough. Um, but bioweapons are, are what keep the lights on at the Pentagon mm -hmm. at night, uh, mainly because they're so easy to make. I agree, and they're, yeah. they're so easy to get. They're cheap. I mean, you can make them yourself. And there's not you did a two-week class? Yes. On making, that's all it took. <laughs> Poison school. Right, a two-week class <laughs> on bioweapons, and then you're an expert. And that's the scary part, right? It's You don't need a PhD in physics to make these no, things. No, absolutely you just need, not. A relatively well-funded lab and funding has never been an issue when it comes to mm -hmm. some of these groups so let me ask you the question that that it's to me the obvious one why haven't we seen bio attacks all over the world I think that's a really good question and I mean obviously the short answer to that is I don't know um, and I'm glad that there haven't been any I was serving <laughs> you up to praise yourself the reason is because people like you I'm, I'm, not, I'm not just like, like blowing smoke up your ass the idea is because intelligence agencies are stopping them. I mean, that, that's my hope, right? Yeah. And I don't know if they are, right? Because I'm not there anymore. Yeah. Um, but the reality is, is I do think particularly here in the United States, um, it's surprising to me um, that we haven't had something on a larger scale, not because the CIA wouldn't necessarily be tracking the people that are here, right? right. And so I think that's what I'm more concerned about than sort of the foreign. Nukes are easier to track, I guess, if you will, because we kind of know who has them. It's transportation costs a lot uh, for them and so that's an easier thing to yeah, I mean, delivery systems are always the key when you talk about weapons right. of mass destruction and but if you pair a bioweapon al-qaeda doesn't have the means to have a delivery system would be but you don't need a delivery system if you've got a guy who's wanting to kill himself I agree. right if you just you know a spray can on the subway All you need is really air conditioning right vent. so this is something that you know you mentioned in the book and this is why you end up all over the world is you can't track this stuff from langley mm -hmm. And that's where I think a lot of people will be surprised um, to find out how much forward deployed we have people who aren't necessarily, I mean, analysts are now forward deployed and other things that this is not kind of the old way of thinking about the CIA where the nerdy analyst is back at Langley behind a desk and even the person whose job it is to look at pictures and photos is also forward deployed. Yes. <laughs> this sort of, I, I answered the question of my own. That was great. Um, I mean, that that's something that I wonder from you. I was, this is the question instead of uh, you can just say yes to this also. Um, is how necessary is it to kind of put yourself in the shoes of who you're hunting? How necessary is it to kind of 
look at the same terrain, to understand the same customs, because that that in and of itself, this is really kind of a it's personal thing. It's absolutely necessary. Yeah. And I, what I will say is, the at least when I was there, again, I'm speaking from my experiences, the agency did an excellent job um, at ensuring that we at least had some background on that before we were sort of forward deployed, yeah. which thank goodness. But just even at a smaller level than that, uh, when I was speaking to some some folks, which I allude to in my book, just a simple question like, why did you become a terrorist helps me understand them. I don't excuse their behavior, but it helps me understand them in a way that I can maybe ask questions differently to get the answers that I need. Right. So a lot of, a lot of this book, and, and I say this as a compliment, um, makes me want to just apologize for 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 humankind and mankind. That's not what I'm looking for. No, no, I don't I think get, all men are bad. No I, no, I get that. Just because you just want to be just like, oh my God, we're such assholes. <laughs> um, and a lot of it comes from not necessarily the United States, although we'll talk about that down the road, but you're in a position where you have to cooperate with other countries and other yes. countries in areas of the world that are underdeveloped or are developing. And in many cases, since we're fighting a lot of people who have kind of subverted and, and adulterated Islam, these are countries where Islam is the predominant religion. And so women are not necessarily seen as equals. And I think of some of the stories in this book, whether it's from Malibu Barbie um, or you know people who aren't willing to talk to you because you're there even though you know more than the guy you're with. They go and talk to the guy because they assume that he is the one that actually is in charge. That had to drive you absolutely insane. Or did. I mean, it would drive me insane, but I mean, I, I think that... Um, it really didn't. I'm not a pushover. I mean, I will stand up for myself. That That's not, you know, sort of a wet blanket. But I think, to be honest with you, particularly in my time at the agency, that happened fewer times um, than I think one would expect. There's really just two or three instances. None of them had to do with anyone I was working with at the agency. Right. And there were some countries that I went to where you would have fully expected that behavior, and I didn't have that hmm. behavior. And so I think, um, yes, I'm frustrated by the way that I was treated, but I think what's more frustrating was how I was treated by some colleagues later right. on in my book. Oh, and we'll get because to that. I think that behavior... I don't want to say was expected, but I understood culturally right. in a way where it was coming from. I think one of the things that you, you talk about here that, that is easier to identify as far as frustration is concerned were those around the world, countries around the world that were less enthused, let's use that phrase, about the job that you were trying to do. <laughs> you know, those who you tried to catch a terrorist and they didn't work on Sundays. Yes. or uh, there wasn't I remember enough... printing out that cable and putting it on my cubicle. That's extraordinary. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the things where it's like, and this isn't today where we've kind of chilled out a little bit and relaxed some. This is knee deep. No, this is like 2002. Right. This is knee deep <laughs> yeah. in the quote unquote global war on terror. And then you also have instances where you're laying out that this particular individual who's just gone into a country has bought all the ingredients necessary to make, let's say, ricin or something like that. And the, the host country will not take any action. Right. That was more enraging than how I was treated by... Right some foreign intelligence services because to me that was national security right. and we were trying to help those countries secure themselves right because these weren't attacks that were going to happen in albuquerque these are attacks no, that were going to happen overseas in their country. that's what right. i'm saying yeah. is we were trying to help those countries not fall victim um to an attack and i think we thought well you know if this country has an attack we figured the blowback would be on us even though we had given them you know the information it's very frustrating because you 
for security reasons, can't come out and say, well, we gave that to you, right? right. Um, but yes. Well, you the, saw that in that unnamed African country where they had a major attack and they yes. blamed you for it, even though it was yes. kind of on their watch that yes. it happened. I, you mentioned also, you know, one of the greatest failure at CIA was the Madrid attacks. Mm -hmm. That was also an instance where, and this isn't something from your book, but this is something from me knowing a little bit about what happened there. There were warning signs that were passed along a la pre-9-11-ish. But I think you're kind of too hard on yourself in that respect is that there was no direct lineage from well there's never a direct right. there's never you know this direct line from point a to point b um but i think that was just one time that i think we felt personally responsible for mm -hmm. that and i think also dealing with the situation with iraq coupled with that it was just a lot all at once we'll be right back after this Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Let's talk about a rock. Okay. I can't. I, I, I don't believe you did not just lose your mind completely about this. You, you had a unique role in the lead up to the Iraq war. Um, you were making a chart about- Which was not about not Iraq. about Iraq, Not about Saddam Hussein, not right. about the Iraqi government. It was about bioweapons. It was about um, bioweapons actually probably going to be used against Saddam Hussein, if, if anything, if anything. Mm -hmm. um, and all of a sudden you see your chart and it's been altered and it's been shifted and changed, but you see it on international TV as Colin Powell is speaking to claim that there is a link between bioweapons and Saddam Hussein and, and terrorism in Saddam Hussein. How did you not pick up the phone and call the New York Times? Well, it's funny. Um, someone on Twitter called me a coward actually for not doing that. Um, and maybe I should have. I really don't have any regrets necessarily, um, but I think for us, it was it was less about, you know, why was this misused and more about the fact that now these folks' faces who were not public faces, they were people that we were using our assets to get information on to locate them and stop attacks, now knew that we were looking for them. Um, and part of what happened with Madrid is one of them was involved in mm -hmm. it. Um, and I think that's where we were the most frustrated was now we just lost any ability to track these future attacks um, because their faces were shown on national television. Right. I think perhaps maybe this might be more frustrating for you or for, for the CIA as a whole is a lot of people look at the CIA and, and 
and blame them not only for mm-hmm. us getting into Iraq, but for not predicting the complete shit show that would Iraq would become. Excuse my language. It uh, did. I agree with oh, you. Yeah. Well, it's thing, and, and, and you you spell out in the book, and this is not the first time it's been said, so it's not like you're saying anything secret. No. Is that there were contingencies for everything laid out, not only by the, by CIA but by other American agencies saying. If this happens, we should do this, and we should make sure we don't do this. And, we, and all that was completely ignored by the Bush administration. Everything, you know, don't fire everyone who knows what the hell they're doing, right? You want at least the guy who can run the power plant and the police and everything else. All that was spelled out and completely ignored also. And yet people turn to CIA and say, what were you doing during this time? Well, I think that's partially because that information remain classified, right? The CIA yeah. can't defend itself. And I think that's why sometimes the CIA gets such a bad rap, right? Um, people only know about our failures, not really about our successes. And I'm sure people at the CIA wanted to say, hey, we told you so, right. but they can't um, for fear that they'll be prosecuted. And so I think that's really the biggest problem. Well, let me shift to something a little more personal. Um, and this is something that I, I've, I've talked to, again, former case officers and others who uh, constantly have to remind themselves of who they are. Like in some cases, they have to kind of step out of the role of their, you know, at least mentally of their cover of their legend. Are you talking about like imposter syndrome? Well, just, well, but more about the idea of never losing touch with who you are as a human being. And for a lot of the men, it's it's one thing or another, right? It's different stuff. But for you, it's it's things like throughout, like getting oh. your roots touched <laughs> up and making sure, you know, you have mascara on and like pink tchotchkes. And things like that, that, that I wonder, I, I, it's clear about the importance of those things. Um, that had to have been something that maybe got you ribbed from some people. Was there any of that? If not, that's... Never. Um, you know, and a lot of other females, they're the same way. I mean, we would sit there, we'd fashion magazines together sometimes in war zones. And it's just what we did, uh, spa days, things like that. You know, not every female is like that, right. but a lot of females were. I don't know that I ever got ribbed when I was there. I mean, I imagine I mean, it's the same as like guys in sports and whatever else. It's it's a way to kind of take. It's your the mind same off. way that the seals would be watching, you know, football to unwind. Um, we didn't rib them about it, so why would they rib us if we were? It just no, no one really. Maybe people did behind my back, and I just didn't know. But uh, no. I mean, I, I I think it's indicative again of the kind of the collegial attitude of we have a job to get done. Let's mm-hmm. do it and and. Whatever outlet you need to right. be able what, to what focus. What you do on your free time matters very it. little. It's what you're doing, you know, mm-hmm. when you're actually being a professional, that matters. At that point, you seem to be doing pretty well at the CIA. Mm-hmm. You had a pretty good career going. You were well-respected within the agency. You had tracked down some very bad, bad guys. But you wanted something more. And I want to ask you about why you made the final shift to the FBI. Uh, mainly because doesn't go great. We'll talk about that. But um, what what drove you to wanting to shift agencies? So, and that was a really hard decision to make. Um, some people were initially skeptical of my book because they thought it would be some, you know, we're throwing the CIA under the bus because I, you know, didn't work there for 30 years. And I don't at all. Mm-hmm. I'm extremely positive. Um, but sometimes you leave, it's okay to leave a job on good terms. Right. <laughs> it happens. Um, and so for me, um, at the ripe old age of 25, 26, um, you know, I was, um, I'd been traveling a lot. Um, and I just realized I wanted some more stability. I was kind of sowed my wild oats, I guess, um, and had experienced life overseas. And I realized that something about the agency, that's the core mission. They're never going to change. And that's okay. I don't 
need them to change. Right. Um, and I thought, you know, hopefully I can still work counterterrorism. I obviously was still very passionate about it, um, but work stateside and work in one place for really ever. That's kind of what I had thought I would would do. And so that's why I decided to make the switch. I mean, I'm still in contact with, with friends there. They were bridesmaids in my wedding. I, I, and so like everyone else who joins the FBI, you get sent down to training at Quantico, which yes. is this mythical place down the highway where not only is there a Marine Corps base, but that's where the DEA is. Right. And yeah. where the behavioral analysis unit of the FBI is. And of course, where the FBI Academy is. And you would expect since the FBI is not, let's say, DHS, which was just stood up less than two decades ago, or mm -hmm. that the FBI would have its act together and be a little more progressive when it comes to minorities and women going through Quantico. But good Lord God, this was a big of an eye-opener. Because, I mean, you usually don't see... There's a lot of books out there about how shady and shifty the CIA is, right? This is not anti-FBI, but you had an experience there that I wouldn't want to wish on anybody else. And you, you used the right word. You said it's junior high. Yes. Like it is as eighth grade as it comes where everyone is just kind of backbiting and calling names. And the teachers, meaning in this case your instructors at Quantico, were worse than the actual students. How in the world did you get through this? I mean, I, it, it, it has to be just gutting it out, right? I mean. Well, I, it was funny. My mom read my book for the first time a couple weeks ago. And she said, I, I can't believe you stayed. Yeah. And she's like, but you're not a quitter. So I get why you stayed. And she's like, but you never told me how bad it was. And I think I just had to sit on it, I guess. You know why I was there and not, not tell people. Yeah, so the rampant sexism. I mean, the fact that you had to apologize to Bart. I want to know his real name so badly. Uh, apologize to Bart because he was a pig is, is something of the 1920s. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's something out of well, Hoover's FBI. And, you know, it's interesting. I wrote an article recently for a history journal um, about women sort of in these careers. And if you look at it, and again, the CIA is not perfect, but the CIA has been at least attempting to fix gender inequality or at least discussing it um, since about the 1950s with the Petticoat Penal. Um, but Hoover did not allow women to be agents right. until 1972. So they're also way behind the times, just even in terms of discussion about it. Um, I'm not saying that gives them a pass, but I just think just in terms of how gender is viewed, it's very different. It's much newer at the FBI than it is at the CIA. But I was not prepared uh, for what was going to happen because my experience at the CIA was so positive. I interacted great with my male colleagues um and also we had a few fbi male fbi agents who were detailed to my mm -hmm. office um in ctc who were really great to work with and i never had any issues so i think maybe i was naive but i went in there assuming very much the same right um and what i got was the polar opposite i mean including people not believing that i worked at the cia right. which was hilarious to me because my background investigators for the fbi had to come to CIA headquarters. <laughs> well, this this wasn't just for future like fellow students. Your instructors, it was my instructors, who should have had access to your Correct. file. Oh, and, and I'm it. sure, looking back on it, I'm sure that he did. I think it was almost just fun. To I, I mean, he had to have because uh, it just seems ridiculous right. to me that he wouldn't have. But now reflecting on it, I think he did that just to harass me. Yeah, and in many cases, they made it harder on you than it did for everyone else. Anyone else. And that, you know, you can kind of take pride in the fact that they tried to bring it down. And I it remember in, you know, Hogan's Alley, which is really all about situational awareness, just about every single 
difficult situation because you, you know that you have in there um they made me be like the team leader for and i think they were just waiting to see you know if i would screw up but what's so disturbing is that they were so busy picking on me i don't think they really vetted everyone else right and you know what you i was waiting for like the officer and a gentleman moment where like at the end they're all like we knew you could do it we just wanted to tough you no they were just being assholes yeah and what's that's disturbing is because you weren't vetting anyone else (laughs) at all you were so hyper focused on you know getting me to quit getting me to mess up and i think what's even more disturbing is like there's still cases moving through the equal opportunity office of gender discrimination and i would have hoped that it would have changed but it it sounds like it hasn't. Well, it wasn't just a Quantico when you when you actually got my to the job at, in the LA field office. You kept getting kind of the women's roles. So part of that, um, and what I will say is, um, part of that, someone did apologize. Actually, um, when I was at Quantico, everyone talked about me, um, and so one of the guys who was a couple classes ahead of me was sent to my same resident agency, and uh, he decided to spread a lot of gossip about me. So it already sort of muddied the waters um, and when I left the FBI I had a slew of like 50 texts from him you know come back come back what are you, you like what are you doing I'm so sorry I know I'm the one you know that did this and made it that way I never responded back um, but in a way that was sort of gratifying uh, knowing that at least he recognized that right. he's the one that created that situation I never got sort of that opportunity to be who I was at the agency I guess yeah, well, I mean, even in that case where you would go on raids and stuff, and your job would be to go arrest the wife or to take care of the kids. And these don't seem to me, at least the way they were written, as things that were because of who you were as a as Tracy. These seems like things that they probably would have given the woman agent the job to do regardless. Yes. You know, as kind of a deep-seated sexism. And again, this isn't the, you know... This is only 10 years ago, right? This isn't that, or whatever. This isn't, again, in 1940. This is, this is recently. Yeah, and I mean, I always understood that if they were, you know, they were going on raids where there was women, they always wanted to take a female agent with them, and that makes complete sense. Um, that I never really took issue with. But, you know, men can sit there and babysit the kids just as well as, right. you know, women can sit there and babysit them. Um, and so, you know, in certain things, look, I wasn't wanting to be part of the HRT or SWAT or anything like that. That I knew that that wasn't really in my wheelhouse. Um, but, you know, it was, you're right, just sort of other basic things that right. I think um, they're perpetuating gender stereotypes. What drew you um, away from, I mean, CT was something that you would, had been doing throughout, throughout CIA. Uh, it's something that you probably could have fought your way into at FBI, perhaps. I tried. You tried. I did. I absolutely tried. Yeah. Um, and so I think that is part of what created some of the tension, too, um, at the FBI Academy. So it's on the reveal day where you, you open up an envelope. I don't know if they still do it this way in front of your class. Um, and it, like, says where you're going. Um, and most people don't go to resident agencies sort of right out of the bat. Um, and mine said L.A. field office, um, Santa Ana resident agency. And so people were already pretty mad. Like, why did she get a resident agency? I didn't know why I got a resident agency. And I remember my head being like, why would she get one of those two? So he actually called the office because he just couldn't believe it. Right. Um, and um, I said, you know, I, I, maybe it's because I work counter-terror. I didn't know. Um, and he said, no. Uh, they care more about the clearance that you have. So you're going to work a CI case instead. And I'm like, but my background is counterterrorism. Not just a little bit. 
<laughs> you were you were in the vault right after 9 11 with George Bush standing behind you doing counterterrorism. Again, like I don't think logic really was the way what, that that's they the most ridiculous crap of the world. You're and, literally, you know, and I was in a weird spot, right? I already was in a spot in training where right. no one liked me or was very nice to me. And so do I create a scene about this or do I just sit down, shut up and move along? And so I fought it for a couple minutes. Um, and then once I actually got to my office, I said, you know, Hey, my background's in counterterrorism. And they're like, your background's in nothing. You know, you just right. got here. You don't yeah. have a background and fine. And so it was, they put me in a CI because they needed my clearance from an agency. Yep, That's how you, I ended up there. Wait, and you ended up actually working a pretty interesting case. And you worked a case that we talk a little bit about here. We just don't have the space to do it the biggest yes. justice. But it's a big deal case, and that's the Chimac case. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how you kind of stumbled onto that? Because this is a major so it was bad being, guy. But it was being worked before yeah. I got to that squad. I just want to be clear. I'm not like the person that started that. Um, the, the agent who was in charge, it was actually a pretty decent human. <laughs> um, and uh, he kind of brought the case uh, from the beginning kind of on. Um, but it's also the way that Chinese espionage sort of works is um you know chi mac his wife rebecca and then ty mac who is his brother all have been in the united states for 20 plus years they became citizens um and they were stealing radar cloaking technology um from submarines um and giving it to china and so the navy was also involved um and you know as we got to do i I think a full ci case which was kind of interesting going dumpster diving yeah Yeah, and so we're doing dumpster diving surreptitious entry you know things like that which um yeah those really don't come along very often and you were the you were the resident dumpster diver as yes which was actually not that's real work though i mean people look at that i mean the garage the garbage can say a whole lot about it's really sad because i think sometimes people think oh well she just didn't like dumpster diving that's why she hated the fbi no i actually really enjoyed that i it was a really interesting way to find out a lot about someone to be honest with you it was just really the treatment well and that's the interesting part because after 15 months you leave the fbi but as bad as it was at the beginning and as bad as it was at the beginning of when you got to la the Chimac case seemed to be kind of on the upswing, right? Mm-hmm. This is doing real FBI work, catching bad guys. And that's when you said, okay, enough. Like, what was your ultimate, I mean, you said the treatment. Like, what, did that outweigh the ability to do cases like the Chimac case? So, um, and it's in my books. So I won't give it away what uh, my supervisor says to me. Yeah. Um, and I went home that day. I was actually living at home. Um, I'm from Orange County. Um, and I told my dad. So my parents have always been the sort of people, uh, and this isn't a bad thing. They don't, they don't really believe in fighting our battles for us. Like you figure it out, you work it out. Right. I've never seen my dad get so mad in his life, and I think that was a turning point for me. That this is not okay. Yeah. Um, I can't stay in this environment anymore. Um, and so his reaction, I've never seen him get that upset. That's really what. Um, I guess was the impetus. It wasn't the case. It was the treatment and seeing his reaction to that. Well, I mean, you ended up quitting and doing the thing you kind of always wanted to do in the first <laughs> place, which is to be a teacher. What kind of what brought us what what brought us to your attention, or vice versa, was some of the programs that you'd put in place for high school students, which was so cool at, at in Dallas at the Hockaday School. Can you talk a little bit about what you tried to do to your students? Because I can't imagine that this kind of a program would be doable at a lot of schools you have to kind of trust that you got the right student to kind of push them to the level you're basically doing 
I would say, a high-level college, if not grad-student-level work as to seniors in high school. Mm -hmm. So my students conducted biological threat assessments um, on different, we kind of would put different terrorist groups in a hat and pull them out, and that's what they were stuck with. Mm -hmm. um, we have a Twitter feed that we regular update, and then they were doing podcasts on sort of issues of their choosing, um, you know, the surveillance state, uh, intelligence, you know, whatever they chose. Um, I created the class out of the questions. The girls were constantly asking me questions. Um, and I had a lot of autonomy there mm -hmm. to be able to do that. Um, and so I created that class and I thought, you know, there's not a lot of women in these careers. And maybe if I kind of start a farm <laughs> um, at a younger age, you know, perhaps they can realize that these careers are attainable to them if they want that. Right. And even if they don't, at least they're still talking about the issues. And really all we want is informed citizens. I mean, that's sort of the basic level um, that we would hope. And so that's sort of where that started. But now um, being on the board of directors with girls security, um, they are bringing that into public schools um, to girls everywhere, which I think is, is really important. They're setting up mentorships with them, um, with women who are currently in the field so right. they can get one-on-one -on -one mentoring experiences. And I think that that's just so critical. So we, about 80% of our audience are people in the, in the, in the business in some way or another, or they're high level grad students or, you know, former case officers or other things, if they want to get involved in girls' security, if they want to volunteer their time or their checkbook or whatever else <laughs> and do something to try to give back, how do they get involved? What, so what do they do? You can visit the girls' security website. And then um, another thing that you can do is volunteer to be a mentor um, to some of the girls. That's, you know, they're sort of always looking for those. But mentors in all sort of walks of well, life. They're not just looking for agency people. You want people. Across no, they're the board. looking for State Department, Homeland Security. Um, NSA, uh, think tanks. I mean, really, you name it, that's what they're sort of looking for because I think, you know, they realize, I realize that not everyone wants to be an operations officer, right. but um, women want to be in these careers. Um, also, they're putting out modules um, to different schools for teachers to be able to pilot those with their students. And, you know, they're not just looking at terrorism, they're looking at disinformation, they're looking at election security. And I think all these things are intelligence related right. um they're just sort of hitting it at different angles and i think that that's really needed well the book is the unexpected spy from the cia to the fbi my secret life taking down some of the world's most notorious terrorists just came out about a week ago uh the author is tracy walder uh she is on the board of directors for girl security definitely check that out all you guys out there also to see what you can do to help <laughs> um but it's an extraordinary uh, organization. And just, again, finding out what you were doing at, at, when you were teaching in Dallas uh, just kind of blew my mind. The kind of people uh, who uh, we want working with us and for us. So I really appreciate the time that you've taken, Tracy, to be here on SpyCast. Thank you for having me, Vince. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash 
survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. 